I'll read about the um, the sixth uh, jhana. I think I have read yesterday about the fifth, didn't I? Did I read about the fifth? Yes. Okay. Again, by passing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite space, seeing that consciousness is infinite, he reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite consciousness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. Now, with the... um, With having been able to get to the infinity of space, which I think I have already explained, it is only possible to be aware of that when the consciousness is also infinite. Because the consciousness that is limited cannot be aware of infinity of anything. So while we're having a consciousness which is, as we know it now, we couldn't possibly be aware of infinity of space. So in order to have the awareness of that obviously the consciousness must be the same and therefore in order to get from the fifth to the sixth it is very similar to getting from the first to the second because in the first the pleasant sensation arises but with it comes joy and although the pleasant sensation is the overriding factor in the first one needs to only turn away from it and need to turn towards the joy in order to experience the second. The same happens here. They both arise simultaneously, they have to. So in order to experience the infinite consciousness, we turn away from the awareness of infinite space and turn ourselves towards infinite consciousness. Now the Naturally, the um, comparison is not entirely apt because first and second jhanas are a fairly gross compared to fifth and sixth. The aptness of the comparison is only in relevance to the turning away from one and turning towards the other, which is already existing at the same time. This is all it refers to. The infinite space and infinite consciousness are both extremely insightful if one uses them that way, namely after having come out of the infinity of space and equally out of the infinity of consciousness the mind knows without a shadow of a doubt that there was nobody there because there was only space and there was only consciousness. The observer is there. The observer is much stronger than in the fourth jhana. In the fourth jhana, they are far more quiet. But with the observer observing that there's nobody there, the conviction arises that the Buddha's teaching of the substancelessness and qualifiedness of all that exists comes to the mind that it must be so because in space there is only space and in consciousness there is only consciousness but there is no personal body nor is there a personal consciousness. Now with the 
spaciousness, which I've already explained yesterday, how to get there and what to, uh, how it uh, appears. Obviously, there's no particular thing in it or particular person. And the mind can uh, relate to that fairly easily. But when the infinity of consciousness is experienced, a new understanding arises, namely the one that our personal ownership of our own mind and our own consciousness is a delusion. There is no such thing as having a personal consciousness or a personal mind. There is consciousness, that's all. And within that consciousness, all exists that has ever been conscious, ever will be, and is now. The only contribution that we make to that is either become aware of the all-pervading consciousness and become imbued with that which comes from it, which is beneficial, skillful, profitable and wholesome, or we become aware of it and take from it that which is non-profitable. And our states of mind then are that, are either non-profitable or they are profitable. By the same token, our own states of mind add to that. We can either have the profitable states of mind or states of consciousness or the unprofitable ones and the whole of consciousness then gets the input from that. So within the whole of consciousness there is nothing separate but we in our belief of being separate separate out of it what we would like to have. So we are doing that ourselves. And because we're doing that, we also have this idea, this is my mind. And we will retain that idea, and we will retain that kind of um, uh, viewpoint as long as we retain the idea that there's somebody here. Because both of these jhanas bring to mind the fact of no personality, they are called vipassana jhanas, inside jhanas. And they bring with them a personal experience which is, of course, far, has far more impact than an intellectual understanding. It is quite possible to have an intellectual understanding of the fact that there is no personal consciousness and that there is no personal body, that it's all bits and pieces, um, and that they are made up of energy particles which come together and fall apart. But without the personal experience of that, it will not have the right kind of um, impact which would change our viewpoint. Although the jhanas should never be thought to be past moments, they should not be, never be confused with past moments where the ego illusion is lost for a moment. There are preparations for it. And there are preparations in the nicest kind, of course. 
because it's extremely nice and pleasant and uh, interesting and fulfilling to have these states of consciousness, which the Buddha says quite clearly are attained through training. And this is what we're doing here. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away. So this passing away um, thing is the fact that we let go of the states of consciousness which are of lesser um, subtlety and lesser quality to go to the next higher. So they have arisen and they pass away. And it is only through training that we can do that. I think I've said already once before, or even twice, that some people do fall into that accidentally, but because they don't, then do not have the understanding of that experience, the experience is useless to them. In fact, it can be um, creating some fear or actually some unpleasant feelings because it is a totally new experience without the understanding of it it will not be of any um, benefit to the person. We have to have understood experiences. The experience is that which is happening, which is on the feeling base. And the understanding is on the mental base. We have to know what it is. Now, obviously, when we know what it is, we can also verbalize it to ourselves, we can verbalize it to a teacher, And as we know what it is and verbalize it, it becomes a reality for us. So that, for instance, infinite space, infinite consciousness are reality. They are no longer something out of the ordinary. They are part and parcel of consciousness. Now, consciousness obviously has many possibilities. The Buddha speaks of 31 realms of existence and sometimes people think that that means that we have to go through each realm up to the highest in order then to attain enlightenment or become happy or whatever it is thereafter but it isn't like that at all this is, this is not a ladder arrangement the human realm is the fifth from the bottom and when we look at 31 realms then we could see, probably quite clearly, why the human realm has so many difficulties and problems embedded in it. But what they actually are, these realms of existence, they are states of consciousness. That's all they are. And this particular sutta is called states of consciousness. And this is what these 31 different states of consciousness depict. The lowest one is called the hell realm. Well, it doesn't mean that we then go through the earth into the hell where there's a fire burning and where these horrible things happening that people think about hell going down into hell. It means that our consciousness is in a state of hell. And people do know those states of consciousness uh, in, in a human body. And there can be other kinds of body, there can be subtle bodies, there can be no bodies. These are all connected to states of consciousness. 
the only realm that we can actually see with our physical eye other than the human one is the animal one and because we can see that so they have different bodies from ours we have gained the wrong impression that all these different realms are nothing but different manifestations they are nothing but different states of consciousness and animals do have different states of consciousness but even within the animal realm there are also different states of consciousness and even in the human realm there are totally different states of consciousness so it isn't so much the body that we are saddled with although that too of course has an impact on us because it creates dukkha and makes all sorts of um, unpleasantnesses for us it is strictly the state of consciousness that we are um, having now when we go into the jhanas from any one upward from number one upward our state of consciousness obviously changes dramatically and it changes dramatically particularly when we get to the arupa the non-material the immaterial uh, jhanas the, uh, the state of consciousness then is one of utter expansion and this utter expansion lets go of the limitations that we set for ourselves now we set ourselves limitations voluntarily and we set them in a manner which is um, detrimental to our well-being these limitations are usually set because we only believe what we can see with our physical eye hear with our physical ear and think with our contracted mind and these are then the limitations that we believe in are in existence all over that is the universe now obviously that can't be right that doesn't have uh, anything, uh, any basis for proof. There's nothing that can prove that to be correct. It is uh, strictly an idea that we have. Now, this is, of course, in everybody's mind like that, because it seems to be what is happening but anyone who can do the jhanas will immediately refute such an idea because such a person has experienced something entirely different an expansion where the universe is in its immensity the only thing that one becomes aware of so the borders of the body and the, the limitations of the mind are only considered then as a necessary, I could say a necessary evil in order to function on this level when necessary. They are no longer the only thing that exists and they are certainly not that which is considered to be the only truth there is the only reality there is 
it is only one reality and it is the consciousness of the human realm the marketplace the human realm consciousness now in that human realm consciousness again we have different levels we have the hateful consciousness and we have the loving consciousness and we have all different levels but they're all still on the human realm when we get into the non-material states of uh, the uh, absorption then we transcend the human realm these are the vehicles for the Brahma realm for the higher realms they are, li- they are the vehicles for the mind for the consciousness to connect with these realms one could say at this point that the Buddha warned very much against then wanting to be there in those realms because they are two exi- also existent and also impermanent but they of course have a nicer kind of existence about them but that in itself should not um, tempt one and that takes of course practice again not to be tempted because it isn't easy to give up the self idea and it's a giving up which is so complete and so total that nothing is left one needs the assistance of an expansion of consciousness where the preview of not being separate is already appearing anything else that we can do in order to bolster this understanding is of course done through the inside path and we'll get back to the inside path um, as soon as we're finished with the uh, path of calm of samatha they both have to be practiced it is um, not uh, sensible to hop on one foot it is uh, slow and tedious and very much prone to accidents when one walks on one foot but if we have both directions which are both taught by the Buddha calm and insight samatha and vipassana we can make good progress and we can actually change our level of consciousness even in daily living now obviously we have to have a level of consciousness in daily living where we can function but we don't have to go back into a kind of consciousness which is or ever contains any hatefulness or ever contains anger, fear and worry because of having seen that the totality of consciousness certainly doesn't have any of that in it and we do not have to separate it out of it for ourselves so our experiences in the jhanas certainly make an impact on the psyche in daily life even though we have to return ordinary everyday kind of awareness otherwise we can't function 
we could possibly do it while walking around in the bush. We could walk around with the awareness of infinity of space or consciousness. But since we don't always walk around in the bush, it isn't possible to keep it to keep that kind of awareness going and it wouldn't be sensible or practical. Uh, from a practical standpoint, it is entirely necessary to see the impermanence of any of these states as they arise in meditation at the end. It is an, one of the important aspects of doing uh, the um, meditative absorption is that at the end the mind is not allowed to think oh that was nice how am I going to get it back quickly but that the mind is directed towards the impermanence of that which is so pleasant we are always happy about the impermanence of dukkha we couldn't have it impermanent enough if we had any say about it which we don't but the pleasantness of our experiences our natural inclination is to grab a hold of them to cling to them and crave for their repetition and because the mind is clear and calm at that time it is not difficult at that time to let go of that reaction and just watch the impermanence the dissolution now obviously it dissolves in its total state however as I've already explained there's a residual aspect we do not have to get back into the total limitation of a strictly human consciousness we'll get to number seven now seventh jhana again by passing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite consciousness seeing that there is no thing he reaches and remains in the sphere of no thingness it's spelled with a hyphen in the middle that's why I'm reading it like that it's not nothingness which is usually the um, explanation but it's spelled with a hyphen no thingness and which is a more literal translation and he becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle perception of the fear of no thingness in this way some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training and this is that training said the Buddha interesting it's not chasing the eighth thing finishes with the seventh okay nothingness uh, nice word isn't it nothingness people talk about such things <laughs> um, it's usually totally misunderstood but what is absolutely essential here is to go step by step because only then does one know where one's at because otherwise a moment or several moments of no thinking may be confused with nothingness because it's so different from our usual way of having our mind busy and constructing all sorts of ideas that even a few moments of not thinking may be considered to be that 
But having gone through the different states of the jhanas, one wouldn't con- would be confused like that because one would have experienced all the preceding ones and knowing exactly that this is the next one. Now, no thingness is, of course, a um, progression from infinity of space and infinity of consciousness because in the infinity of space and in the infinity of consciousness there is no thing there's nothing in there it just is and because of that the mind lets go of the awareness of space space, and the awareness of consciousness and becomes aware that there's no thing now this does have different manifestations is no thing. It's definitely a good idea to spell it with a hyphen because when it's not spelled with a hyphen it's just spelled as nothingness the misunderstanding is even greater because the idea is then that there's nothing to be experienced which is totally wrong. I always compare that with coming into this room and seeing people and cushions and the Buddha statue and flowers, all sorts of things in here and thinking, well, they are all separate items and uh, separate people and then taking everything out and coming back in and recognizing that there's nothing here, absolutely nothing. Well, that doesn't mean that one is aware of nothing. One is aware of the fact that there is nothing in here. There's a big difference between not, no, uh, being aware of absolutely nothing, which means no awareness at all, or being aware of the fact that there's nothing in here. And this is what happens in the seventh. The awareness that there is no thing anywhere to be found. And the actual experience of that is very often a complete breaking up of particles which is a feeling all of these states are feelings they are not thinking obviously and they are not a visualization they are a feeling but sometimes the feeling is accompanied by a visual aspect. There's nothing wrong with that, but the visual aspect alone wouldn't suffice. It's got to be a feeling. It's only what we feel that we can actually consider a personal experience. So we have the breaking, the feeling of the breaking up of all the particles. Now, of course, at this time, our own body is not having a, 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 um, a reality to it. It's so subtle, the body, that one can't feel any heaviness of it like we do now. So what one, the breaking up of particles are everywhere, around one, within one, without any barrier where the body stops and the around one starts it's just everything is breaking up it's breaking up 
could be like a flimmering sometimes. Uh, sometimes it also starts with a wave motion. And it certainly has afterwards the recognition that there is no thing in the whole of the universe which has substance, which has any kind of um, entity, individuality, which has any kind of core which one could hang on to and say this is it, this is me or this is my safe spot or this is what I want. There is nothing at all to be found because it's all breaking up constantly. And because of this breaking up, sometimes people actually say it looks like the dust that comes when you see a, a, a ray of sunlight going through the air and you can see the dust particles and they are constantly moving, they're never still. So, and these dust particles that we can see like that, they're still much bigger than the particles that you can see in the or feel in the sevens breaking up. But it has a, it has a sort of um, uh, resemblance to that. And that's why I'm using it as an um, explanation. It uh, has a resemblance. And because of this experience, again, the insight becomes stronger that the way we see ourselves in the world is a dream. It's an idea which we have made up in our mind and all the other people whom we know are all playing along with us on that same idea and are all dreaming the same dream at the same time. Once in a while somebody wakes up and says, it's a dream, and everybody says, don't be silly. It's why it's real. And very often that person will then subside again and say, oh, well, all right then, I made a mistake. <laughs> because everybody else is of a different opinion. It's uh, very interestingly explained by uh, Plato, who um, gives the uh, illustration of some people living in a cave and being chained to the um, floor of the cave with their back to the opening and their eyes to the back of the wall of the cave and there is a fire going and as the people go past the opening of the cave they see their shadows on the back wall because of that fire and every once in a while a, one of these people in the cave are trying to loosen the chain and try starting to turn around to look out of the cave into the open air where the actual people are walking past. But because they're so tightly chained, chained to the floor, it's a very difficult undertaking. So this is what he's comparing, and he had the same idea, what he's comparing our dreamlike existence where we take all this for real everybody's separate everybody is somebody and particularly oneself is somebody 
and somebody who needs to be protected, defended, looked after, um, have it as easy and nice as possible, and nobody should ever come too near to say anything detrimental because that would then shatter the dream for a moment. We don't want to be taken out of this dream. As as long as we can make the dream somewhat compatible with our desires, our sensual desires, we try to stay in it. But anybody who's done the jhanas will find that very difficult to stay in that dream. In fact, probably impossible. Because um, the jhanas are, the higher jhanas particularly, are a, a definite experience of a totally different reality. And because one experiences it, one knows it to be reality. It's not something one has imagined. It's not something that one has thought about. It's a direct experience. And because of the direct experience, there's no way that one can disbelieve it. And because it also does not carry any of the unpleasant, unprofitable mental and emotional states with it, and this consciousness here on this level does, one has a very definite inkling which one's preferable. The consciousness which carries the ego around or the consciousness which sees that the ego is a mistaken view and is actually um, something that is only used in order to cushion the dukkha. We've got that all wrong. We've, we've got the cushioning of our dukkha all wrong because the minute we accept it as being part and parcel of existence, it no longer hurts. It's only when we refuse to look at it and refuse its existence, that's when it hurts. So if we could change that around, we'd be much better off. And some people do, of course, eventually change that around. Now, in that sphere of nothingness, which is such an interesting description of the Buddha, the insight is the strongest. And the person who has experienced that will either be able to go from there to a past moment or make all necessary endeavors to gain enough insight to do this. Now we will talk about the insight path uh, in the coming days as we finish with the different states of consciousness which are depicted in the jhanas. The reason why the person who has experienced this will definitely make a a very concerted effort to see absolute reality is because coming out of seventh jhana, even though there's complete clarity about the the truth of existence, coming out of it, one gets back into the ordinary way of looking at things. There's a residual effect, but the jhana is impermanent. So the coming back into the ordinary consciousness 
is such dukkha that nobody could possibly be contented with that and has to practice with real um, urgency. The residual effect is one, not only the practice with real urgency, but also that the mind becomes less and less affected by the ordinary day-to-day happenings. They're still all happening, but it's not so much affected by it anymore. And, but the most important aspect is the urgency of practice. That one wants to get out once and for all, because one has seen what it's like when one gets out temporarily. If one has had a temporary understanding of um, being completely at ease, having nothing that could possibly interrupt that ease for that limited time, one is, of course, convinced that that has to be made permanent. And that can only be made permanent through the past moment, which we'll go through as we go along. Interestingly enough, the eighth jhana is not mentioned here. Now, the Buddha sometimes does that. Sometimes he stops at the fourth, and sometimes he stops at the sixth, and sometimes at the fifth and sixth. I just want to see whether that's so. It's a different way of approaching it. Well, I'll mention the eight, seeing, seeing that we're talking about the jhanas, because it now goes on to something else. The next step after this is a repetition of the fourth jhana, but even more so. Just like the other non-material absorptions are repetitions in a way, but far more so, so is this one also. It's called neither perception nor non-perception. And the reason it's left out here is because the Buddha uses the word perception here as states of consciousness. And in the jhana it's used as affecting a perceiving. So what is happening in the eighth jhana is this that the mind becomes, after having seen nothingness, there's nothing to worry the mind at all. I mean, there is nothing there. So why, why should the mind be interested in anything if there's nothing there? So it's no longer interested. And as it's no longer interested, it falls into itself and doesn't have any contact with anything, not even with peacefulness. Because even peacefulness is nothingness. There's nothing. The whole universe consists of the, the coming together and falling apart of these tiny little particles, smaller than the dust particles that we see in the sunrise. So what is there to get interested in? So the mind goes to a complete resting place. And at, in this resting place, it perceives, it neither perceives anything, nor does it not perceive. In other words, then this is mentioned like this so that it is clear that the mind has awareness but it doesn't focus on anything particular. No focusing. This, the, the benefit of this is a complete uh, rest and energy uh, regeneration. 
the mind gets a lot of energy out of that because it is given a total rest at that time it doesn't even have to perceive peacefulness it doesn't have to perceive nothingness it doesn't have to uh, perceive uh, stillness it doesn't have to perceive equanimity it doesn't have to do anything it gives just given complete rest now obviously that can only be done if one has gone through the other jhanas because the mind which is completely focused and concentrated can do that a mind which is still scattered cannot do such a thing and because it is a regeneration of its energy it prepares it extremely well for the past moment which needs a great deal of energy, mental energy because it has to leave everything behind everything that it has ever known it has to leave everything behind so it is a preparation all these steps are the necessary preparations to give the mind the necessary ability an ordinary mind just doesn't have that kind of ability the ordinary mind which is not able to focus strongly is not able to expand be pliable and malleable these are the words the Buddha uses for the jhanas the mind which is expandable pliable and malleable that kind of mind can see the world totally differently without any fear without any um, resistance without any rejection but just transcending the ordinary human consciousness and becoming aware of a totally different level of being there now the being there does not change the body remains the mind remains as it uses all its facilities and abilities to have the clarity so that one can let go of the all the external ideas that we have let go completely and come down to the source now the source or the kernel is that which then happens at the past moment which I don't want to go into at this time but I will read out what the next um, thing is that the Buddha says so I just put in the eighth in the mean in between <coughs> now now the Buddha talks to this Potapada to whom this whole discourse is addressed Potapada from the moment when a person has gained this controlled perception this controlled consciousness huh? he proceeds from stage to stage till he reaches the limit of perception when he has reached the limit of perception it occurs to him mental activity is worse for me lack of mental activity is better if I were to think and imagine these perceptions that I have attained would cease and coarser perceptions would arise in me suppose I were not to think or imagine so the understanding which arises at this time is a very important one this is a crucial moment in the whole of the practice and it can't it's it's an understanding which arises in the mind so it is certainly something that needs to be intellectual because the because of the <coughs> preceding 
happening, the mind now knows. And this knowing that the mind has, it pertains to many levels and many things, is something which is irrefutable. The mind knows. Now, even if the whole of humanity would say, this is nonsense, we think differently, that mind knows. And it is totally clear and sure because of this own experiences. So the mind knows at this time that he has proceeded from stage to stage on these levels of the jhanas and he has reached the limit of consciousness. Now the nothingness is called the limit of consciousness because the next one, as I have already explained, is neither perception nor non-perception. It doesn't have a, a recognition in it. So this is the limit of the consciousness that we have in the seventh. Now when he has reached that, he has understood that mental activity is dukkha. Thinking is dukkha. Imagining is dukkha. All of this is dukkha. No matter how nice the thought is. Why is it dukkha? Out of two reasons it's dukkha. If it's a nice thought, well that too is impermanent. But Thinking is movement, imagination is movement, and all movement is friction, and all friction is dukkha. But that is so subtle, that friction, that the movement of the mind is making, that it needs a really finely tuned mind to, to recognize it. And finely tuned it becomes through the jhanas. You cannot become aware of infinity of consciousness with a grossly tuned mind. It's not possible. It's got to be finely tuned. And because it's finely tuned, it has many abilities which the ordinary mind thinks are supernormal or something like that. They're not. It's just a much finer tuning of the mind. It can have, it has an awareness of the vibrations which obviously thoughts are which sounds are vibrations thoughts are vibrations so the finely tuned mind knows those vibrations and it knows it's all gained by thinking or imagining <coughs> and realizing that lack of mental activity is better and he says, if I were to think and imagine, the perceptions that I have attained would cease. So we can't think and imagine the fifth, sixth, or seventh jhana. You can't think them up. You can't imagine them. Well, you can, but I mean, it wouldn't be the fifth, or sixth, or seventh jhana. It would be an imagination. So the person who has seen that says, these perceptions, the experience of them, would not be there, would cease. Instead, I would be thinking and imagining. And obviously, that's not half as nice, or even one, one hundredth as nice as having these perceptions. It's much, uh, much grosser. Everybody knows what it's like to think. Everybody knows what it's like to imagine. But not so many people know what it's like to be in the fifth, sixth, or seventh jhana. But those who do know, they know the difference. They know that thinking and imagining is on a level which is um, unpleasant compared to the jhanic state. And yet we do have to use them 
in order to function in the world, but we don't have to use them in a way that we used to. We can use them only as a utilitarian, for utilitarian purposes. And the minute that utilitarian purpose is done with, one can cease again. So here, this has been understood at this point. Has been understood at this point that mental activity is, um, is worse, lack of mental activity is better. If one starts thinking and imagining, these perceptions, these jhanas, are see, would cease, and much coarser perceptions would arise in me. The coarser perceptions of the world that we consider to be the only one. This level of humanity where one has always a duality system. What one likes and what one doesn't like, and what one thinks is pretty and what isn't pretty and the rest of it. Now, that person says, suppose I were not to think or imagine. And because at that point, such a person is able to do that, because one can't get into these higher jhanas while thinking or imagining. So, now having made up his mind not to think or imagine, it is possible to do that. Right? So, he neither thinks nor imagines. And then, in him, just these perceptions arise, but other coarser perceptions do not arise. And he attains cessation. So here is a very um, unique uh, sutta in the way that the cessation, which means Nibbana, cessation of Dukkha, uh, is uh, mentioned as a direct result and directly following seven, the seventh jhana and the understanding that that is much more clear, uh, a much better state for the mind to be in. And there is not any particular explanation at this point, but I presume that it will come. And if it doesn't come, we'll get something else where it does come. Well, there's pages and pages of this to come, so I'm sure it's coming. Um, now, this is un- not common, that the cessation is mentioned as following the jhana. It's usually what is mentioned is that they are the preparation and that then several of the inside steps have to be taken in order to, to get to cessation. But here there's only one single step taken. And this one is so natural and so obvious that it can't even be considered to be a special step because anybody who's been in the jhanas, in the higher jhanas, knows that thinking and imagining is dukkha. It's unpleasant. And uh, it doesn't bring any results. Not Nothing like what one gains out of the jhanic state. So that step of, of recognizing that is an obvious progression and then being able not to think nor imagine is also obvious because one has already done it. Now obviously this is having done the jhanas more than once. This means that one is used to them and continually can get into them at, at, at will and also 
uh, stay in them and come out again and practice with that every day. Um, this is naturally takes, is not just a one-time affair. And so then the person, of course, as a progression, cannot, can stop thinking and imagining. And then the nothingness perception arises. And then in him, just these perceptions arise, but other courses do not. So then the, the highest one which is mentioned here is the one about nothingness, and it does arise again. And because of that, and because of the determination, and this is an important step which is not specifically mentioned, and this is also interesting in the Buddhist discourses, that so much of it is taken for granted, that one should know all these things anyway. And um, I've often wondered whether something got lost, which is quite possible, because it took several hundred years till it got written down, or that everybody was so spiritual that they knew it anyway. I don't know which way to look at it. I'm inclined to think that things got lost on the way somewhere. But um, that's only a personal opinion for whatever that is worth. Because the, uh, the thing which is missing here, for instance, at this point, which is not mentioned, is that because one has understood that neither thinking nor imagining has any value and is able to give it up, and then attain cessation, there's something middle in, uh, missing in the middle of that. The, the, the not thinking, the not imagining, means that one is totally willing and able to give up one's individuality, one's personality, one's person completely. Nothing left. And only then is it possible to attain cessation. Because that willingness of not being has to be there. And with it comes also, it's not mentioned at all, and it may be that the first step, this is sufficient, that the complete willingness to disappear. Because the one who doesn't think and the one who doesn't imagine becomes one with that nothingness and is nothing. And that then is the first step on this path to, uh, on this path which has four steps where the cessation has to be experienced four times. And that Puttapada is the way in which the cessation of perception is brought about by successive steps. And then he asked him something. What do you think, Puttapada? Have you heard of this before? No, Lord. As I understand it, the Lord has said, Potapada, from the moment when a person has gained this controlled perception, he proceeds from stage to stage until he reaches the limit of perception and he attains cessation. And that is the way in which the cessation of perception is brought about by successive steps. That's right, Potapada. Now, Potapada repeats it just to make sure that he understood the Buddha right. And the Buddha says, yes, you have understood this right. So there's much more to come from that uh, after that, which we'll do as we go along. Yes.
The more detailed explanation of the cessation uh, is then given to Potapada as he keeps asking questions. So obviously he hasn't understood how to do it, so which is not surprising, is it? Very interesting. Right? Uh, any questions? <laughs> Well, isn't it? I find it very interesting anyway. It's a good thing I'm interested at least. It is that uh, totality experience. Is I am that or that I am, whichever way one wants to turn it around, and that is the observer, yes. And that has often been considered to be the summit of the experience that can be had in the spiritual life. But the Buddha does not agree with that and obviously didn't, um, and obviously practiced further than that. Because that, uh, it's in Hinduism, Tattvamasi, I am that. And uh, he said, no, it is further than that. It is not that I am that, but I am nothing. Or nothing, uh, no. <laughs> nothing. The I am is nothing. That's better. <laughs> yes, the observer is there. And then when with that nothingness, um, uh, with the seventh one, where the understanding, see, there comes then the understanding which in the fifth and sixth wasn't mentioned yet, it can come there too. The understanding comes that uh, it is not useful to come back to this level of consciousness, thinking and imagining, then it's possible to let go. Anything else? Yes. Yes. No, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. In the, in the khandas, the vinyana, you see vinyana is a word that's used all over the place in the Pali canon. Uh, just like dhamma is used everywhere. Um, in the khandas, the vinyana is the sense consciousness. I, the, the seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and you can see also the thinking. It's not states of consciousness like what we're talking about here. It's a sense consciousness, which is the beginning of the whole rigmarole that we go through day after day after day after day. The sense consciousness, which starts it all. It's compared in the um, commentary to the Abhidhamma, if I remember right, to a man sitting under a mango tree and being quite um, being asleep sitting there being asleep and then a mango falls down on his head and touches and that's how it all starts touch, contact and then 
And then he says, ooh, that hurt. In fact, there's a lovely story about that in one of the Jataka tales. Um, there's a little rabbit, or a, let, let's say a hare, I think it was called a hare, was sitting under a mango tree. And he was fast asleep and uh, quite comfortable, dreaming of what little hares dream about. And then he heard this terrible thud. A mango had fallen off the mango tree and landed right next to him. And he heard this terrible thud. And he thought, the earth is breaking up. I've got to get out of here. So he started running. And then the other little hare saw him running and asked him, why are you running? And he said, the earth is breaking up. Quick, quick, come. Let's save ourselves. So then they were all, the little hares were running. And then there were some deer and they saw the hares running and they said, what's the matter? Why are you running? And he said, the earth is breaking up. We've got to save ourselves. So all the deer started running. And then the hares and the deer were running and then there were some um, water buffaloes. And they saw them running and they said, why are you running? The earth is breaking up. We have to save ourselves. So all the water buffaloes started running too. And they were running. And then the tigers came and they said, why are you running? And they said, the earth is breaking up. We've got to get going. And so they also started running. And they came to a, to a huge uh, lake and there were some lions there. And the lion said, why are you running? If you're going to run any further, you're going to fall over a precipice. It's right in front of you. And so the, the leading hare said, but we've got to run. The earth is breaking up. We've got to save ourselves. So the lion said, how do you know the earth is breaking up? He said, I heard the thud. And the lion said, where did you hear the thud? He said, back there, where I started from. The lion said, wait here. I'll go and look. So he went back to look and he came back and he said, the mango fell down. This is how our perceptions work. This is what we do all day long. All the time. It's one of the Jataka tales. The lion was the Buddha. Hmm? The Jataka tales are the uh, fables or stories of the um, Buddha's former lives, in, very often in animal form, something like Aesop's fables. There's always a moral to the story. So it's the sense consciousness. And that first beginning is called Javana, when it hits you. That's how it all starts. And that's how we keep going. And it's very important. I've said that several times already. I'll keep repeating myself. It doesn't matter. Buddha repeats himself all the time. Um, it's very important to become aware of this. How this works. How the sense contact brings about all the rest of the stuff that we do. And it's only through the meditative path which has been outlined here so far that the states of consciousness do uh, change to much uh, more subtle states of consciousness. But we can certainly uh, stop ourselves on this pre-programmed reaction that we don't have to keep going with. Anything else? Yes. Let's say the, the first absorption, the first jhana, 
your mind is concentrated on thinking. Mm. Uh, now, is that consciousness the same as Sankara or different stream of thing altogether? Because I'm just trying to trying to work out whether if I could understand whether the different in a way different uh, fact, uh, different components of the mind, so that I could break up the uh, <laughs> cut off the uh, Sankara much better. <laughs> Are you really believing what you're saying? <laughs> Why don't you make it simple for yourself? You have experienced pity, even if it was only briefly. All right. It was brief, okay, but you've experienced it. So you know. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And you're also experiencing what your mind is doing right now. Right? Which is nicer. Oh, well, there you are. That's the end of that story. My sister, I could, well, sometimes, for a day or so, I could get back onto it. So I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just trying to work out the mechanism. What am I doing wrong? Why can't I get back to it? Yeah, because I'm thinking too much. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> Stop thinking and it all comes back. Thinking and imagining. You've just heard it. Nothing but dukkha. That's right. It's sticky. I'm just trying to see if there's a way I could just... I can feel it. I mean, sticking to the pole, of course. But, you know, there's something that could make it sort of let go a bit more. How do I let go? Yes. (laughs) By recognizing the dukkha of not letting go. Over and over again. That's dukkha. Not letting go is dukkha. Why do I have to make my own dukkha? Why don't I make my own sukkha instead? Again and again, seeing it, the dukkha that one makes for oneself. And then just letting go again and again. And it all floats away. Not necessary to keep it. And you can also look at the thoughts and see how utterly irrelevant they are. They have no basis in any um, profitable state or anything. You can see that. So you tell yourself, I don't want to make myself any more dukkha. Okay? Yes. Partially, yes. I don't want to exaggerate. (laughs) I don't want to exaggerate. Anyway, uh, if you're thinking you want to do something, 
uh, it might be helpful to think that I want to meditate rather than do something. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your heart and become aware of what it contains. And amongst all the emotions that you might find, pick out only love, warmth, caring, embracing and all pervading pick only that one and be filled with it Feel the harmony and the peacefulness that are generated from a loving heart. Recognize love as the key for living together 
without conflict. The love that each has in his or her heart. Cherish that in your own heart. Protect it. Make it grow. Think of it as a small plant in your heart which you give all the attention and care that you can and watching it grow under your very eyes now. Coming larger and larger all pervading. Now let it flow out from your heart to wherever you wish it to go. Wherever you wish to establish togetherness, peace and harmony, let it reach out from your heart and touch people's hearts near and far those you know those you don't know those you have seen those you have never seen. People everywhere, all kinds, a love which flows from your heart does not discriminate.
Let it reach out to the animals. Those you know, those you don't know. Near and far, small and large. Beautiful or ugly, love does not discriminate. your love flow out to nature around us, trees, the earth itself, flowers, lakes and streams, ocean, the beach, the mountains, tiny flowers, large mountains, those you know, those you don't know, all part of you. Let your love flow out to beings we can't see with our physical eyes. Let it flow out to beings everywhere. flow to stars and moon and sun and clouds and the sky, all part of you.
bring it together in love. Now let your love flow to the enlightened principle which is in you, which is everywhere to be found. Give it your love. attention on yourself and feel yourself as being loved and nothing else. May our beings live together in love. 